Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Well, good morning still. My name is Reed Jolly. I was here a handful of times in the winter months, and I am back. And, uh, but never again. No, no, we got to get the new pastor. I'm so excited you have a new pastor, and we got to have to say, go on vacations, because Reed wants to come back. But uh, anyway, it's great to be here. This church has been such a, a, a warm, welcoming church for Lisa, my wife, and I, and we're grateful. If you have a Bible, and you do have one near you, would you turn to Exodus chapter 34? Second book of the Bible, it's probably even on your phone somewhere, who knows, but no no texting during the sermon. All right, all right, I, lo- I love this service because I get to pick on the people. You, you're, what you, you didn't know I was coming back, did you? You're like, oh. But I, I'm going to give you a word. It's going to be on the SAT, and if you get this right, you can go to Harvard without your parents' help, okay? It's not that hard of a word, dilemma. You know, how many M's are in dilemma? Two, very good. I didn't even know that. Uh, Quandary, predicament, oh, you're just looking up there. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, catch-22, impasse, insoluble problem. All right, here's a dilemma. Ever hear of Indiana Jones? Yeah, he's got an ugly snake over there who wants to bite him. He's afraid of snakes, right? And a bad guy over there who wants to kill him, and he's in a dilemma. What's he going to do? Now, you, are you guys, any of you four guys married? Yeah. You're married? Someday you're going to get married, and you're going to have a dilemma. This happens to most married... Are you married? Are you... Like... <laughs> so novios? Okay. Um, someday this is going to happen to you, so pay attention. This, this will come in useful. But your, your wife goes, and she buys a new dress without telling you, and then she comes out of the bedroom with the dress on, and she makes a presentation. She says, do you like my dress? And you, deep down inside, you don't. It's a dilemma, right, guys? It's ever happened to you? you? You've got one of two choices. You can either tell the truth and, and say you don't like it and then die, <laughs> or you can lie and thus face the judgment of God. I mean, that, that's a real dilemma. Uh, another example, and this has happened in my family, where one of my family members is facing cancer. Cancer is a weak cell in your body, and they can be treated with chemicals with chemotherapy or radiation or other means. And there's a dilemma for everybody who's ever had cancer. And I'm sure there's people in this room who've wrestled with cancer or maybe wrestling with it right now. Do you want to kill the cancer without killing the patient? And and there's a a balancing act there, a dilemma. Well, today, and I'm so glad you're all here because you're going to learn something that a lot of your parents don't know. Uh, We're going to look at God's great dilemma. We're going to look at a very short section of scripture that contains one of the most important, least known, and most problematic passages in all the Bible. That's quite a promise I just made. And at the heart of the passage is a dilemma that God faces. It's not our dilemma, it's God's dilemma. It's as if God ties himself in a knot. So we're going to think together about God and the dilemma that he has. So, With that in mind, we're ready for the reading of God's Word. Now, we're going to be in Exodus 34, but I'm going to ask you 
to uh, not to peek, to keep your uh, Bibles, just keep your thumb in your Bible, but let's stand for the reading of God's Word and let's listen to it, and then we'll look at it. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come with you and let no one see, be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshiped. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Have a seat. Okay. What I want us to get is this. We worship a God, hear this, who is desperate to forgive us. He's desperate to forgive all who will come to him in faith, but God can only do so when he untangles himself from his fundamental dilemma. So here we're going to look at this passage. It's just eight verses. We're going to look at the preparation, the proclamation, and the prostration. So let's go. Uh, verse, uh, verses 1 to 4, there's a preparation here. Our passage begins with Moses being called up on Mount Sinai yet again. Now let me give you a little context, okay? We, we've just jumped into Exodus 34, and it makes no sense unless we have some context. Israel was a people that was formed in the land of Egypt, and they kept making babies. They were there 400 years, so roughly twice the time of the American experiment. And they grew and grew and grew, and toward the end, at some point, they become a slave people. There's a pharaoh who enslaves them, and they're treated harshly, and God delivers them miraculously out of Egypt, and they actually bring some of the wealth of Egypt with them. They cross the Red Sea, uh, 50 days after they're delivered, they come to a place called the Araha Valley, and they're at the foot of a mountain called Mount Sinai. And the nation will camp there for 11 months. We'll call it a year. And during that year, seven times, Moses goes up and down the mountain, up and down, up and down. And Exodus 19, read this this afternoon. It's really good reading, okay? It's easier than gone with the wind. But seven times he goes up and down, and the third visit is absolutely sensational because God is forming a covenant with his people. They're going to become his people. 
And so they agree to the covenant uh, stipulations. The, 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 it's like a constitution. They say, yep, we'll do what you say. And, and uh, God says, I'm going to visit and show the people, he says to Moses, I'm going to show them uh, that I actually speak with you. So there are two days of consecration. They're to get ready. The third day they're to be ready for, and they wake up on the third day, and Mount Sinai is enfolded with all this smoke and fire, and the people are in their camp, and the text says everybody in the camp trembled. And when they do so, there's a sound of a loud trumpet blast. Moses brings them out of the camp to meet God. Wow. And it says, the text says, they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. We learn later in the New Testament that Moses trembled. And there's this ever-increasing loud trumpet blast. And the Bible says, even the mountain trembled. The picture here is a picture of the holiness of God. We learn earlier that, that they're kind of, I'm making this up, but they're to put yellow tape around the bottom of the mountain. And there's, there, anybody that touches the mountain is to be put to death. So there's a, a distance from this holy God. And you get too near the mountain and you will die whether you're a man or an animal. Everyone who touches the mountain is to die. Now, there's a great little lesson for us right there. Uh, and it is this, that sin is not a light matter. Uh, we're kind of an easygoing people, are we not? And we think we have an easygoing God. And when you read Exodus 19 this afternoon, you're going to find out differently. We tend to think of God as our buddy. Back in the 80s, uh, MTV was just getting started, and there were all these you know, music videos, and Christians started making music videos. And you could watch the Christian music video and you weren't sure if the artist was singing about her boyfriend or about God himself. It just wasn't quite clear. We domesticate God. And that's not over. It didn't end in the 80s. Just a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times, there's an English cathedral in Norwich where they installed, get this, picture doing this here. They installed in the cathedral, a Gothic cathedral, a 50-foot slide. And the pastor, the bishop, preached his sermon halfway down the slide a couple of weeks ago and sang a Bee Gees song during his sermon. He said, this is a deliberate attempt to help people engage in our cathedral. He says, I'm not making this up, New York Times. He says, God is a tourist attraction. I'm quoting him. God wants to be attractive to us, for us to enjoy ourselves, each other, and the world around us, and this glorious slide is just about that. Well, how different that is from the God of the Bible. In fact, when you read Exodus 19, the people see all this and they tremble. And when you, if you just go over one more chapter to Exodus 20, the people say to Moses, you know, that was great. But from now on, Exodus chapter 20, verse 18, from now on, they said to him, you speak to us. Don't let God speak to us, because if he does, we will die. So God is not so much an attraction in the Bible. Well, Moses keeps going back and forth. He goes up the fifth time. On the fifth time, God cuts for him two tablets of stone, and he writes the law on the, on the tablets of stone. They're up, Moses goes with Joshua, they're up there 40 days, and that's a long time, and the people of Israel in the camp, they get a little bit tired of waiting, and they're not sure where he is, 
And so they take off their earrings, they take off their nose rings, they take off their bracelets, they give them to Moses' brother, whose name is Aaron, and they say, Aaron, make for us a god that we can worship. Moses takes all the gold of the people, he fashions the gold into a, an idol, into a golden calf. And he holds up the, the idol before the people and he says to the people, Israel, behold your God. This is detestable idolatry. And the people engage in something of an orgy at this point. It's utterly abhorrent to God. When Moses comes down the mountain, he comes down right in the middle of the orgy, in this pagan worship, and he throws the law at them and he grinds it up into the water source, he makes them drink it, and you know what happens to it then. At that point, God wants to destroy his people. He says to Moses, basically, step aside, I'm going to put them to death, and I'm going to start over with you. And Moses enters into an argument with God four different times. Moses intercedes for the people, and he says, you can't do that. If you're going to kill them, kill me. And at one point, God says, okay, you go ahead, take them into the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you. To which Moses says, if you're not going to go with us, I don't want to go. Well, that's the backdrop. That gets us to the place where we are in Exodus 34. This is the seventh time up the mountain. This time, Moses has to cut his own tablets. He goes early in the morning. He goes alone. There's no Joshua. No one else is to be seen on the mountain. Here's that same concept of staying away from this holy God. And Moses goes up as the Lord commanded him. God has called Moses to meet with him, and Moses goes in God's way to God's place in God's timing. Again, a great little lesson for us, because we think that we can do God a favor and show up whenever we want, how we want, and God will be really pleased. We even talk about accepting Jesus into our lives as if we're doing him a favor. Well, we need to read the scriptures. Sometimes we'll make our own preparations and God doesn't show up, and we're offended. This passage is for us. So Moses is prepared. Let's keep going in the passage. Look at verse 5. We see the proclamation. Moses goes up to the top of the mountain. He goes as far as he can go, right? Meet me at the top, God says. Anybody here like to climb mountains? Uh, Lisa and I sort of like climbing mountains. One of us does, at least. And, and uh, we were in Glacier National Park some time ago, a handful of years ago, and we were on a backpacking trip, and there was a mountain there, a peak, and it was called Mount Flinch, and beautiful mountain, and kind of challenging, and so we hiked and hiked and hiked, and it's always a lot farther than it looks, and we get to near the top, and there's a couple of dicey little moves, and uh, we were tired, and I kind of hobbled up there, and my first thought as I made the last move, I thought, well, at least my wife is not going to come up here, because that was kind of stupid on my part. And I turn around, and there she is. I thought, oh, my gosh, how are we going to get down? You know, and, and, but it's, if you've ever climbed mountains, when you're really tired, you get kind of emotional. And she's crying a little bit. And I said, Lisa, we're there. We're at the top. And she said, how do you know when you're at the top? And I said, there's nowhere else to go. <laughs> this is as far as we can go. Moses goes as far as he can go. He goes to the top of Mount Sinai. But, but watch this. That's not very far relative to God. God closes the gap. God comes to Moses, and, and we worship a God. He, sa he, he says, yeah, you put yourself in a Well, Jonathan Edwards put it like this. Jonathan Edwards says, if we want to know God, we ought to labor to put ourselves in the place of allurement. 
The place where we will be enticed by God. Well, that's what Moses does. He goes where God has told him to go. And God is the one who closes the gap. Okay, question for us. Do you know why Moses is on the mountain this time? Seven times, why is he back there yet again? Why is he there? Well, back in chapter 33, verse 18, Moses has said to God, show me your glory. God, I want to see your glory. You remember, you know what God said to Moses? He says, you can't see my glory. If I show you my glory, you will what? You'll die. But it's in the Bible. God says, I'll show you my backside. It's there. That's what God says. And this is that. Moses goes up. God hides Moses in this cleft in a rock. And the Lord passes by. Fascinating. Look at the description in verse 6. The Lord passed by and proclaimed. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. I am absolutely intrigued with that. When Moses tells this story, I'm assuming Mosaic authorship of the book of Exodus, Moses, get this, it's hugely important. Moses doesn't describe what he saw. He describes what he heard. We worship a God who speaks. And he has spoken to us ultimately and finally in his word. Moses makes no effort to describe God's luminosity, his effulgence, no. He spoke. These verses testify to God's greatest problem. You say, God has a problem? Yes, he does. He has a dilemma. Look at it. God descends, he stands with Moses, he, he passed before him, he proclaims, what does God proclaim? You with me? Your Bible's open, look at it. What does God proclaim? On the one hand, God proclaims the glory of his loving kindness, the wealth of his grace, the magnitude of his forgiveness, the beauty of his holiness, it's all there, verse 6. But on the other hand, hear this, so important, God proclaims the reality of his justice, the constancy of his character, the uprightness of his nature. Do you see the most important word in the passage? It comes in verse 7. In fact, it might be the most delicate and important word about God in all the Bible. It's the word but. Can you say that with me? But. See, you can memorize scripture. You see God's dilemma? You see it? God says, I'm the God who forgives, but, but I don't forgive. I forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, but I never clear the guilty. I don't ever forgive guilty people. Well, 2019 is a great year for 50th anniversaries. Do you know any of them? Come on. Moon landing. Okay, I'll, I'll say, you finish this. Wood. Sock. Yes. Um, haunted mansion at Disneyland. That's the most important one. 
there was a couple here having their 50th anniversary today, so we should have put that in there. Uh, there's another one that's a little more, um, a little more serious. It's the 50th anniversary of the Manson killings. Charles Manson was a serial killer and had a, a gang of people, and 50 years ago, just two heinous murders in Los Angeles. He was uh, arrested about six months later, tried with all of his gang, and they were convicted and sentenced to death back in the day. And then that, those death sentences were later commuted to life in prison. So I want you to think with me for a minute. Do you know, have you ever heard of Charles Manson? Yeah. So it's 50 years later, people your age are still thinking about him, or maybe. <laughs> um, he died a couple of years ago in prison. Picture with me for a minute, if, if the judge in that courtroom had said, well, Charles you're a pretty good-looking guy, and I've come to like you in this court, and you probably need a haircut, but, but um, I'm sure that you mean to do good from this point on, and so I'm going to sentence you. Even though you're guilty, I'm going to forgive you and sentence you to time served. You're free to go. Now, had the judge done that, which is probably legally impossible, but had the judge done that, we would have all said there was a tremendous miscarriage of justice. This would be a, a corrupt judge that would let the guilty go free. All right, how then does God get out of his dilemma? What is his way out? How can God forgive people he loves and yet not forgive those who are guilty? The entire nation has violated God's covenant. What is he to do? How does God forgive sinners and not forgive sinners at the same time being true to the sheer love of his character and the justice of his character? Do you see the problem? Got it? Am I being too repetitive? You're saying, get to the point, Reed? Yeah. It's a problem for God. Well, one answer is that God forgives those who repent. It's a biblical answer. This passage is quoted over and again in the Old Testament by Nahum, by Habakkuk, by Haggai. It's, it's God forgives people who repent. And he forgives the children of sinful parents who repent. So God forgives the repentant. But if you think about it, those who repent are still guilty. even though they've repented. If you, maybe people in this room fall into two categories. Some of us believe that, that my sins are just a trifling little matter, that it's no big deal. And others in this room, I talked to somebody after the first service, she's, she's just wrestling for years, she said, with the fact that she doesn't think God could really forgive her. So in this room, we probably have both kinds of people. If we think that sin is but a trifling matter, just a little breaking of the rules, no big deal. It's like, it's like parking for five minutes too long in a 90-minute parking zone. Well, we will never repent because we don't think there's anything really to repent of. On the other hand, if we're haunted by our past in some way, maybe something in your past as recently as this morning, well you're somehow convinced that God could never forgive you. Either way, you need to go up the mountain with Moses and see God's glory. I beg you to do this. 
Anybody been to Yosemite Falls this spring? And we had the biggest snowpack in history, in recorded history. And Yosemite Falls is just gushing and gushing and gushing and gushing. I want you to know something, church. God's love is like that. It just, it just flows. It's endless. The love of God is like that cascade of water gushing and gushing and gushing. But the justice of God is like the gravity that pulls the water to the valley floor. God offers his abounding love to all who repent of their sins and come to him in faith. But God offers this abounding love only to those who will repent of their sins and come to him in faith. But the problem still remains. Even those who repent are still guilty. If I am a thief and I apologize and say I repent, I'm still a thief. If I borrow your McLaren and go a little too fast and wrap it around a telephone pole and I say, I'm so sorry, I repent. Well, good, but you've still got a broken McLaren. You with me? My repentance does not solve God's dilemma. I may be sorry for my sin, but I am still sullied by my sin. Two weeks ago, Jeffrey Epstein was found dead in his prison cell. I don't know if you know this story. Jeffrey Epstein was accused of abusing dozens of young women and sex trafficking and all this stuff. And he either committed suicide, possibly was murdered in his prison cell. And, and nationally, we were kind of disappointed by this because we wanted him to face a court of human justice. Epstein, I think, was 66 years old. Let's pretend that he faced a trial, that he was given 440 years uh, for his crimes. How long is he going to be in prison? 10 years, 20 years, 30 years maybe? And he would die and justice still would not have been served. What if he could live for another 440 years and serve out the whole sentence? Still, there are broken lives that he's left behind him that cannot be made right. You with me? So we as Christians, we can, we can take some comfort in the fact that we know that Jeffrey Epstein will ultimately one day face the court of God's justice. And we can rest in that. But then we think, wait a minute. I too am going to face the court of God's justice. Romans chapter 14, verse 10 says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And guess what? We are not all Jeffrey Epstein, but we are all guilty before God. Every person, this amazing thought, every person in this room will face the judgment of God and we will stand before God guilty. Verses 6 and 7 in your Bibles that are open right now, contain the central riddle of the whole Bible. On the one side, God's love, his tenderness, his eagerness to forgive. On the other side, God's justice. Now, let me ask you a question, especially you in the first two rows. How did God wiggle out of this one? Can you believe I said that? How did God wiggle out of this one? Love and justice. How did he get out of it? You know the answer? He didn't wiggle out of it. God himself bore his own justice. 
Isaiah 53 talks about a coming Messiah, and Isaiah says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. So I talked with this woman after the first service, and I just went over the gospel. There are people in this room, probably like her, who think, boy, I must be the one that God cannot forgive. I want you to know, he can't. But in Christ, he already has when we come to him in faith. Christ bore our punishment. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, <clears throat> the Apostle Paul says, God made him who had no sin. Jesus, who had no sin, he made him to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So if you ever struggle with, with surely God couldn't save me, he couldn't forgive me, surely I don't have assurance of my salvation, go to the gospel. Go to the mountain, not Mount Sinai, but to another mountain, Golgotha. the place where Christ was crucified. Moses went with two tablets in his hand. We've got to come with nothing in our hand. As long as we come with some righteousness of our own, we can't come completely. We can't get to the top of the mountain. But when we come empty-handed, ready to receive the forgiveness that Christ has given us, and only then will we be made right in him. God, get this, God did not overlook his justice in order to save you. God did not suspend his righteous decree in your case. God did not forgive you the way we forgive one another. In a few minutes, a very few minutes, we're going to be on our way, and somebody's going to say something stupid to somebody else in the room. It'll happen. And maybe this afternoon you'll remember that, oh, I shouldn't have said that. And you're going to call your friend. You're going to say, Tom, when we were in the patio, I said this, this, and this. And I want you to know that was stupid. And I'm sorry. And I'm sure I offended you. I'm, I'm really sorry. More than likely, on the other end of the line, Tom's going to say, I don't even remember you saying that. But we're all good. I forgive you. Right? You've had those kind of encounters, haven't you? And if you haven't, you don't have any friends. <laughs> I want you to know something. God did not and God could not do that with your sin. Your sin had to be paid for, and it was paid in full by Christ on the cross. And we receive that by faith. Well, look at that last verse, the prostration. I like the way the New Living Translation uh, works with this. Moses immediately threw himself to the ground and worshiped. This is not a polite bow. Moses is sprawled on the ground. He's come into contact with the glory of God, with the holiness of God. He gets much more than he bargained for. He thought he was going to get another copy of the law. No, 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 no. He sees something of the glory and the grace of God and the justice of God. He falls down and worships. And you know what happens next? He spends another 40 days on the mountain alone, and when he comes down, remember what happens? His face is aglow. So much so that Aaron and Miriam, his sister, are afraid of him and they run for their lives. And the people are afraid of him. 
Now, you know something? Those of us who've met Christ, we are invited to, to see the glory of God. The word became flesh, John tells us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. We are invited to look. And when we do, you know what happens? Our faces will change. It's true. They won't all change at the same rate and in the same way, but our faces will show the glory of Christ. Now you know why we read that passage right before I started teaching. We all, Paul says, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are all being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Two questions and I'm done. I want to know, have you looked? Have you looked at the glory? Have you come to Christ? Hanging around church services, hanging around youth groups, hanging around Christians is not what we're talking about. Moses falls to the, to the ground and he worships. He submits himself to God's grace. John says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous and will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have we looked? Have we been born again? For others in the room who've come to know Christ, and probably most of us, I hope, are we looking? Are we looking and looking and looking and allowing that great transformative work of God in our lives? Let's pray together. Lord, we say thank you and praise you for what you've done for us. We acknowledge that we worship a God who is desperate to forgive all who come to him in faith, and now we come to you in that faith. You were so desperate that, in fact, you became one of us, and you died the death that we deserve to die. And again, we say thank you and praise you. I want to pray for this room. I want to pray for those who don't yet know you, that you would bring them in, and that they would submit their lives to you, and be born again. For those of us who do know you, Lord, may we look and keep looking and be transformed by this great gospel. And God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelprez.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.